Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprint. Roadside memorials in Hamilton may soon have a time limit. A new online survey on the LRT project is being launched. Will the federal conservatives give the boot to leader Aaron O'Toole? New recommendations to tackle housing affordability in Ontario. The Ticats have been busy before free agency opens next week, and we chat with recently signed linebacker Simone Lawrence. And new data shows how Canada is failing people with heart failure. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Most important feature of it I referenced was um, what are the expectations from the city on how we're going to manage these memorials and how are we going to have those sensitive discussions about altering them or removing them and uh, what does that look like from the public's perspective. Yeah, Hamilton's Public Works Committee approving a time limit for roadside memorials. This is very interesting. Mike Field is the Acting Director of Transportation Operations and Maintenance with the City of Hamilton and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. So why is this being done? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, I think that uh, we did some gap analysis previously, and uh, the city's never had a policy that deals with how we manage roadside rem- memorials, and uh, many other municipalities across Canada do. Um, so uh, just kind of uh, as a, as the uh, improvement to the way that we handle things to make sure that these roadside memorials are being um, properly attended to in a sensitive manner, uh, I think that uh, it was time that we put forward a policy that uh, describes how we manage them, but also uh, provides the public with uh, some perspective as to how we manage them and what their role is so that we can, like I said, manage them in a respectful manner. Was there a concern associated with these roadside memorials? And would one of those be maybe the visual distraction that some of them do create for motorists? No, not not necessarily. I would say that most of them uh, are, are by no means uh, a safety hazard. Um, the, uh, the the uh, kind of thought of the policy from a safety perspective is make sure that they are not interfering with uh, with you know important uh, public infrastructure are put in a space where it is safe. But the other thing that uh, we look at too, or we'll be looking at, is the location and how those people who are visiting those memorials uh, are are uh, are able to visit them in a safe a safe manner that they are accessing them. Um, in a safe way from the uh, based on the location that they're put. Uh, this proposal, which has received approval from the Public Works Committee, now goes to a City Council for a final vote. Um, these roadside memorials can only stay in place for 18 months. Why that time frame? And is that just a carbon copy from what other cities are doing? Yeah, we did a, a big scan on other municipalities and what their policies are. Uh, we, we were able to uh, look at 13 formal policies from across Canada, most of them being in, in Ontario. And uh, they range from not permitting um, them at all to uh, to having some time frame. I would say the mass majority of those time frames are somewhere between six months to 12 months. And uh, we selected 18 months um, kind of as, as a, a strategy uh, and based on the review of, of those other municipalities' policies and what works for them. Um, so that's how we uh, we came up with that time period. Mike Field is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Mike is the Acting Director of Transportation Operations and Maintenance at the City of Hamilton. We're talking about a, a proposal that's going to City Council that would limit um, the, the time that roadside memorials are in place. What happens with the existing memorials? Because we have several of them, as motorists probably know as they drive around town, several of them uh, throughout the city. What happens to those existing ones? Should Council approve the policy uh, any memorials that were installed prior to the approval of the 
policy will be grandfathered, so they won't fall under the terms of the new policy. Uh, and those will be um, uh, left as is. They were installed in a day and time where, where this policy obviously didn't exist. And uh, it's not fair to uh, to put them under the terms of the policy with that considered. Um, and anything that we need to do with those pol- with those um, uh, memorials in the future, we would uh, we would consult directly with the stewards of those policies, with those uh, I keep mentioning policy, but with those roadside <laughs> memorials, and uh, with the ward councillor to make sure that uh, what we're doing is is uh, is fully transparent and uh, uh, coordinated. Uh, with those, um, the stewards of those those memorials, so that they are full awareness of what we're up to and and why we're doing that sort of thing. So, but like I said, they're grandfathered and they don't fall within the terms of of the policy. Also, in the uh, proposed roadside memorial policy, there are some dimensions that uh, people would have to adhere to. Can you speak to that? Yeah, there's there's dimensions, uh, <clears throat> and generally it's about a, a one meter by one meter uh, area that uh, we're looking for for the memorials to be uh, uh, contained within, and then uh, some other features as far as the location, that sort of thing. I would say mass majority of memorials that we see across the city are, are the organic type where it's, um, you know, flowers and that sort of thing that uh, mm-hmm. they are very temporary and they don't last there for a long time. Uh, in the rare occasion, some people build build uh, memorials that are more meant to be uh, permanent or long longer lasting. But uh, mass majority of the, pol- or the uh, memorials we see are, are those um, flowers and that sort of thing taped to, uh, say, light poles or, or poles or just placed uh, next to the roadway. If a tragedy uh, happens on a, let's just say, a, a road in the city, there's a makeshift memorial that, uh, you know, springs up. Would the grieving family have to contact the city to say, hey, can we put something at least for the next 18 months here? Is that how that process works? No, they don't need to contact the city. Under the policy, we do ask if possible, they contact us just to let us know. And the reason for that is so that we have uh, the contact person should we need to talk to someone. Um, but uh, by no means do they need to contact us, understanding that, uh, you know, if they're in a difficult situation. And the first thing that they're not thinking of is phoning the city to, to tell us that they're uh, putting something next to the roadside where their uh, loved one may have died. Um we, we run a regular patrol across the city for uh, for maintenance, that sort of thing. So we will be looking for the memorials through that process and identify them as they pop up, should we not be contacted by the, uh, the whoever the steward of the memorial is. Makes sense. Mike, appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Mike Field, Acting Director of Transportation Operations and Maintenance with the City of Hamilton. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Oh, it's our favorite topic in Hamilton. No, not the great stadium debate. No, it's not whether the Tiger Cats are ever going to win a Grey Cup again. It's not anything else. Three simple digits. L-R-T. Well, the Hamilton Community Benefits Network is launching an online survey on the LRT project. And here to explain what's going on is Carl Andrus, Community Benefits Manager with the Hamilton Community Benefits Network, and joins us now. Good morning, Carl. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Thank you for having me. Hey, thanks for jumping on board once again. So what is going on? What are you hoping to accomplish here? So uh, the Hamilton Community Benefits Network was actually formed back in 2017 when the LRT was first announced to have full federal, uh, provincial funding. And um, we came together as a community labor coalition to basically figure out what we could ask from Metrolinks in the city of Hamilton for community benefits beyond just the LRT itself. So we wanted to talk about uh, local employment, about um, the LRT project supporting uh, career paths for marginalized 
individuals into the building trades. Um, so we came together to basically put ourselves uh, between the project and the community to demand more than just the LRT itself. So as part of that mandate, we're actually reaching out to folks in Hamilton to ask them what they think community benefits should be springing from the project. So do you take all this input and say, hey, City of Hamilton, hey, Metrolinx, this is what Hamiltonians are saying? Absolutely. So we were formed uh, very similar to the Toronto Community Benefits Network that's had some um, success in negotiating with Metrolinx on community demand. So we're going to distill all of the information working with our partners at uh, the um, McMaster Office of Community Engagement. We're going to take those demands and we're going to, obviously, we're not going to get everything that everyone wants. <laughs> that's uh, completely unrealistic. But we are going to push very hard on some of the uh, the, the, the top demands of the community and place them on Metrolinx in the city of Hamilton's desk. We have a, commun uh, a community benefits committee, actually, that's, that reports to the Hamilton GIC. Um, so we're going to distill this information and present it in a stakeholder report to the city of Hamilton and Metrolinx and hopefully um, get some of the top demands. We're chatting with Carl Andrus, Community Benefits Manager of the Hamilton Community Benefits Network, on how they are launching an online survey on the LRT project. So before we dive into some of the more specifics on what you think you might hear, what is the time frame for feedback? When does this begin and when is the deadline? So um, there's no deadline. Um, the, the nice thing about community engagement is it's an ongoing process, so it will continue throughout the course of the project. But we're hoping at least over the next uh, two months to gather as much data as possible to begin the negotiations with Metrolinx and to begin our conversations uh, with the city of Hamilton around what uh, folks are looking for. Some of the early feedback we've got um, is what you'd expect around affordable housing and the need for the 90 plus properties that Metrolinx has bought uh, from the community to be used for affordable housing. We've also heard though micro changes like, hey, why isn't there water fountains at Hamilton LRT stations? So uh, funny that you mentioned affordable housing, because there is a story that has broken over the last day or so that Metrolinx is under fire for selling some land in Mississauga to a developer for just shy of $65 million. And none of that land is apparently going to be earmarked for affordable housing. So is that a is that a big stipulation you think that the community is going to demand? I, I think it absolutely will be. Metrolinx has told us time and again they are not an affordable housing provider, which seems ridiculous as they're now one of the largest private landowners uh, in the city of Hamilton, and they've bought those 90-plus properties, displaced hundreds of tenants along the corridor. So one of the big uh, and very early community benefit asks that we've heard is around affordable housing, and what is the Metrolinx, who's ultimately an arms-length government organization, going to do with that land? So in terms of that feedback, is it just one big report that you're funneling to uh, the, the stakeholders or are you giving them bits and pieces? How, do, how is that going to work? So we, um, like I said, there'll be a report that we'll publish in April based on the early uh, information that we get back from this survey, as well as our community engagement sessions that we've been hosting. And then we're also going to take that report back to the community to ask them to, of course, kind of dial in on their their most asked or, or most wants. Obviously, everything that we hear from the community, we cannot possibly get as an organization from Metrolink. So we really want to distill what are people really interested in? What are they willing to fight for? What are they engaged most with? So we will take that early data, go back, do some more consultations uh, with, with the city. Our, our job is, is advocacy and community engagement as an organization. So that process will continue throughout uh, the LRT. 
Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Carl Andrus, Community Benefits Manager at the Hamilton Community Benefits Network. We're talking about an online survey that is being launched regarding the LRT project. We know that this project was highly controversial and in many regards probably still is in the minds of some in this community. Are LRT detractors able to chime in with their thoughts? Absolutely. Actually, in our first two community engagement sessions, we had um, uh, quite a few no LRTers that came in to um, to give us some of their feedback. And actually, people who are most critical of the project probably provide some of the greatest feedback in terms of their concerns in, in what's going on with the system, how it's going to affect the city and what we can do to mitigate some of those concerns. Well, they certainly have a lot of buy-in because they want to see this project, now that it's been approved, uh, be successful. So what what are some of those feedback elements that they've provided? So some of, some of the early uh, information we got, of course, was was concerned about accessibility for the elders, uh, about whether or not the uh, Hamilton Street Railway would operate the system or whether or not it would be an, an arm's length private company. Um, obviously, we, we heard a lot about... Um, making sure that the operation and maintenance stayed within the city of Hamilton. So we avoided a situation like happened in Ottawa. I probably don't have to tell your listeners about how much of uh, (laughs) an interesting affair that's been. And will this uh, network be uh, alive, so to speak, throughout the construction of the project? Or do you have a, a best before date, for lack of a better term? Uh, so we are funded by the uh, Hamilton Community Foundation, the Atkinson Foundation, and the Hamilton Halton United Way. Um, so, so far we have two years of funding. So fingers crossed they think that there's value in this project and it continues beyond that. But we are, of course, dependent on um, uh, charities and funders for our, 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 our labor and our work. Excellent. Good to hear. Carl, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Have a great day, Rick. Carl Andrus, Community Benefits Manager, Hamilton Community Benefits Network, chatting to us about an online survey that is now out on uh, the LRT project. You can find that on the World Wide Web and cast your vote, so to speak, on uh, what you think the LRT should look like and some of the things that you want to hear about. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Anyone who joined the convoy but is rightly uncomfortable with the symbols of hatred and division on display, join with your fellow Canadians. Be courageous and speak out. Do not stand for or with intolerance and hate. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. That is the voice, of course, of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau reflecting on the trucker convoy and the protest that continues to go on in the nation's capital, although by the day it gets a little bit smaller and smaller and smaller. How's this going to impact things? Well, there is going to be a big vote tomorrow, and that is going to happen in the Federal Conservative Party as a number of disgruntled MPs within the Tory caucus want a change at the top. That brings us to our Twitter poll question of the day at AM900CHML. Should the Federal Conservative Party dump leader Aaron O'Toole? 85.5% saying yes, 14.5% say no. And how will the response from politicians to this convoy of truckers in the Capitol health or hurt their image? Daniel Perry is a consultant with Summa Strategies and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Daniel. How are you? Morning, Rick. I'm doing well. How are you? I, I'm good. So Aaron O'Toole says, quote, he's not going anywhere. Is that is that the case or is he a dead man walking? 
Well, it depends. If you asked me 12 hours ago, Rick, I would have definitely been a lot more optimistic about his chances. But it's very clear that Caucus isn't happy with him right now. And I think we are seeing that, especially around the social conservatives in the caucus, as well as Western Caucus, which makes up most of it. So I think he's going to be in a real battle. That said, he's had a leadership question three or four times already, and he's come out. So it's going to be really hard to tell this early on, but it's going to be a challenge on this one, that's for sure. One MP who spoke to Global News on the condition of anonymity said, quote, this isn't about leadership anymore. It's a fracture in the party. Uh, so uh, it, it, can he repair? Can he put some spackle on this crack? It's going to be hard. It seems like the party is going two different directions, I'll be honest with you. It seems like there's one part of the party that wants to be more modern, that wants to be a party that represents Canadian views, where there's other parts of the party, I'm assuming the, the MP that I've spoken, that doesn't see that, that wants to pull Canada back, that wants to not support gay rights, that does not see the environment as an issue that people should care about. And frankly, I don't think that's where the party needs to go. And I think Aaron is doing the right thing. But doing the right thing is not always the popular thing that that's and that's what Aaron's seeing right now did the ongoing trucker convoy have any impact on these new developments because we know that um, Aaron O'Toole had met with you know the leaders of this uh, initiative um, others did not like Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, yesterday saying that no he would not meet um, with this uh, with these individuals D did that play a part in all this it definitely played a part in it. Uh, there's a reason that Aaron O'Toole struggled with it, because I think personally, I don't think he agrees with it. But looking around the caucus room and hearing what party members had to say, he realized it's something that he needed to support. So he held his nose in a sense and went out and met with the truckers. And he did that because he understood that if he didn't, he would be in even more trouble. And at the end of the day, meeting with the truckers is part of him fighting for his job and trying to keep the party happy. And he really likes his job right now, but he also wants a chance to be the prime minister. And he knows if he doesn't listen to the party, then he's not going to have that chance. And part of that was going out and meeting with some truckers and talking with them about the issues that they're facing. We're talking about the future as leader of Aaron O'Toole here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Daniel Perry is our guest, consultant with Summa Strategies. Um, so what happens to the Conservative Party if O'Toole wins this leadership review vote? And what happens if he loses? If he loses, that's a much easier question. Um, he will be done as leader and they will find an interim leader. Some people are kicking around the idea of Andrew Scheer coming back as leader, but I think that's wishful thinking. Um, if he does win and survives this round, uh, there could be another chance for him to have another chance for him to have his leadership reviewed by the members uh, in the coming months, which is a more formal process, which is in the Constitution. And that's the process I think he's most looking forward to and which gives him the most hope because at the end of the day, those are the same members that voted for him to become leader and he, he thinks he can re-empower them. We're a caucus. It's a little more dicey at the moment. That, I would not want to be in that room on Wednesday, Rick. Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, if he wins this leadership review vote tomorrow, I mean, there's there's a lot of relationships that have to be repaired. And I'm not sure that this fractured party can be repaired, at least at this point. Yeah, it's definitely, even if he does win, uh, it's not going to be a fun time to be either the person that tried to get him removed and start this coup or even being Aaron, because he's going to have to have a lot of awkward conversations with a lot of people. And 
if I've seen one thing with the Conservative Party, they're very insistent. So if they don't get what they want, they will keep trying to get it. So he's going to be, have to be very careful how he mends these fences and where he goes from here. If he stays on as leader, it's going to be really hard to say. This is when internal party politics gets really interesting because you have an individual like Pierre Poiliev, um, who is, you know, by by many cases, O'Toole's right-hand guy, um, being potentially uh, in the running to become leader. While I'm sure he might want to support Mr. O'Toole, there's also a part of him that says, yeah, I can do a better job than he can. It definitely is. And like, especially even in the last leadership race, people were very disappointed that Pierre didn't run. But at the same time, if Pierre is looking to run, he can't have blood on his hands. So he can't be the one that tries to pull the trigger in this sense. He needs to kind of just let other people in the caucus do his bidding so he can come up behind and be the white horse. So he's he's in a very tough spot and he has been, to his credit, has been very supportive of Mr. O'Toole and has done a very good job of trying to push him forward and at least not publicly try to backstab him. We have another minute with uh, Daniel Perry from Summa Strategies. We're talking about uh, well, all the fun stuff that's happening in Ottawa and one of those is the trucker protest. Who in your mind has done a good job in their response to this convoy and this protest and, and who's dropped the ball? Uh, to be frank with you, I don't think anyone's really done a good job, uh, especially walking around Ottawa. Uh, anytime you see uh, Nazi memorabilia or uh, people defacing statues or even peeing on memorials, it's not quite what you're looking for. Um, that's it. I think Jamie Singh has kind of towed the line very well where he's spoken up when needed, but he's kind of let the Conservatives and the Liberals duke it out. Um, that said, the worst performer, uh, judging by his caucus review, I would say Aaron O'Toole. Uh, I think he's fumbled the situation at a level that even the bills might be offended about. <laughs> Daniel, appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Daniel Perry, Summa Strategies consultant, taking a shot at the Buffalo Bills. Bills Mafia, you should be angry. Uh, oh, so close yet. Oh, so far. Speaking of which, yeah, Super Bowl, Rams and uh, Bengals. What? Yeah. A couple weeks time, they'll duke it out in, uh, in the Super Bowl. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The Ontario Housing Affordability Task Force has released a report outlining dozens of recommendations to help address the housing affordability crisis, uh, not only here in Hamilton, but certainly across the province being felt really uh, around this country. Uh, here to chat about it is the president of REMAX Canada, Christopher Alexander. Christopher, good morning. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm not too bad. When you look at some of the uh, dozens of recommendations coming out of this task force, what are some of the more important ones that come to mind for you? Well, they're really looking, I mean, the the most important one, in my opinion, is that they're finally looking at a three-level government um, plan, which is really the only way they're going to have a positive effect. I mean, the challenge that we face across the country is that we're really 20 years behind on a national housing strategy that can address the shortfall in uh, supply that we're, we've been experiencing for the last really 10 to 15 years. And so I'm pleased to see that they're, they're looking at a three-tier um, uh, task force that will be able to really make an impact on speeding up approval processes with developments. It looks like they're having some out-of-the-box thinking as far as zoning and inclusionary and exclusionary zoning. Um, so I think for the first time, at least from what I've seen, uh, this could be a very uh, or have a very positive impact on the market. 
And the three-level government's plan uh, that's part of these recommendations, that's basically going to streamline the process and make things go quicker, which we've seen is a huge part. Red tape at the municipal level uh, is is a major um, roadblock for a lot of these developers. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think the amount of development that we've seen, particularly in southern Ontario and the GTA, is... Um, you know, ecstatic and, or sorry, uh, it's tremendous, uh, especially over the past decade, the amount of development that's happened. So there is a backlog. However, a lot of projects takes, a lot of projects take you know, three and sometimes even more than four years to get approved. Um, and that's just unacceptable uh, considering the shortfall that we have. Um, you know, we really need to speed up that process and we also need to find ways to uh, pump out new inventory quicker. Um, and so, you know, it's, we're really only building about 45,000 new units a year. We should be, uh, you know, getting way above those levels if we're going to make any impact on the supply shortage. And on 900 CHML, Christopher Alexander, president of REMAX Canada, we're ta- talking about the Ontario Housing Affordability Task Force recommendations. I think there's 58 of them that have been uh, unleashed. Uh, one of the questions I've always had, and I'm sure other people are asking themselves as well, is are developers willing to build affordable housing units? That's the other you know, kicker because I think they're going to need incentivization to make it worth their while. Um, you know, affordable housing is not going to make developers, um, you know, the profit lines that they're looking for. And that, that's just a, re- a harsh reality. And so uh, it would be great if our government could find ways to incentivize develop- developers to build more affordable housing so that, um, you know, their their profit margins are, you know, as intact as they can be. Otherwise, it's just, you know, plain business and they're going to do what's best for their organizations and that's to make money and unfortunately affordable housing isn't what what will do that for them a number of uh, government initiatives have been uh, released over the last number of years mortgage stress test a vacant home tax foreign buyers tax we've had the capital gains tax for a while do these uh, things do more of a hindrance than a good in terms of developing new homes it's my opinion that yes, they are more of a hindrance than good because what's happened in the pandemic is really, uh, you know, evidence of it in the market that we've experienced since the pandemic started is their short-term band-aid solutions and they compound the, the challenge. So for example, let's say you qualify for a house that's a million dollars today. They put in a demand calling measure like a new tax or a stress test or whatever, you know, any one of the measures they put in in the past. It takes that same buyer that qualified for a million time to catch up. So they take, you know, it takes a year or so to start saving to meet that delta of the new thresholds that you must qualify for. And so it just compounds the issue. So then you've got a group of buyers that could have bought today at a certain price point are delayed. Um, and then you compound that with with our supply challenges. It become became this perfect storm through the pandemic because you've had the measures on the fair housing plan that was introduced in 2017. Uh, you had a, a pool of people that were ready to buy at the beginning of 2020, and then bam, the market stopped for you know 60 to 75 days, and then it's just been going like wildfire since. So um, I think governments need to be very very careful when implementing any more 
measures that are aimed to curb the demand and they should be very focused on increasing supply as much as they can. Here, here. We got to run. Christopher, appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Christopher Alexander, President, REMAX Canada. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, a day after the Hamilton Tiger Cats and receiver Brandon Banks agreed to part ways, uh, the team has been quite busy. One of those moves has been the re-signing of star linebacker Simone Lawrence, who joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Simone. Good morning, Rick. How are you doing? I'm good, and happy birthday. How does it feel? Hey, I feel great, man. I feel stronger. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you're you're 33. You're not 23 anymore. How many more years do you have left? Oh, uh, man, I always leave that up to the man upstairs. <laughs> I just keep going. Signed a new uh, contract with the Tiger Cats. Um, was there any thought in your mind to do something different, join a different team? Uh, no, my heart was always in Hamilton. Um of course, you always get curious because everybody likes to um, peek over, but you know, you know what they say about the grass and all that. So I just like, I just want to win it here. You know, my goal was to win a Grey Cup in Hamilton, and that's like my main focus is just trying to find a way to improve and get better and make people better around me. Uh, Dane Evans, Don Jackson, Tunde Adelike, Stephen Dunbar Jr., Chris Van Zyl, Brandon Revenberg, some of the guys who have re-signed with the team. How great is it to see all those guys coming back, and does that give you confidence that, yeah, our Grey Cup window is still open here? Yeah, that's amazing. You know, that's a great foundation right there. Um, and I feel like if, if we get some a couple of guys back and just, you know, how our, our coach O builds camaraderie in the locker room will be fine and we'll be on the road to compete. Like every other CFL team, there's a host of other free agents still to be signed. And in Hamilton's case, that list includes guys like Jagera Davis, Dylan Wynn, Ted Laurent, three guys on the defense, a lot of other guys on defense as well, and, and a few on offense. Do you guys talk during the offseason? Do you, do you text? Do you DM each other, say, hey, you know, what's going on? Or do you keep all the business stuff kind of separate and private? You know, you text and you talk about the stuff and you know how everybody minds work. So, you know, some people you talk to about it, some people you just let make their own decisions. It just depends on the person. Um, but, yeah, we talk about everything pretty much. But at the end of the day, you just want people to do what they feel most comfortable doing. You know, they don't, you don't want them to come to an environment where they don't feel comfortable or anything. So you just, you know, wish them the best and let them make their own sound decision. Simone Lawrence is our guest. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Zamprin here. Simone signing a new uh, contract with the Black and Gold and will be in Hamilton for the 2022 season. I mentioned off the top, uh, no Brandon Banks. How weird is it going to be to not have uh, Speedy B in the locker room? It's going to be it's going to be uh, weird. You know, Brandon's going to be missed. You know, um, he he's a great player that doesn't go unknown, and um, he did a lot for the community and. You know, we're grateful to have him for all these years, you know, to watch a human highlight reel. Well, let's hope we see him in the league somewhere. That would be certainly fun. Uh, congrats to you. Looking forward to see what uh, you and the Ticats do in 2022. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Have a great one. You too. Happy birthday. Simone Lawrence, star linebacker with the Hamilton Tiger Cats, joining us here on GMH. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. New data from the Heart and Stroke Foundation of Canada reveals how Canada is failing people with heart failure. 
And here to chat about that is Dr. Harriet Van Spall, an associate professor of medicine for McMaster University, scientist for Population Health Research Institute and Heart and Stroke spokesperson. Dr. Van Spall, how are you this morning? I am doing really well. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us this morning. Let's dive into this data. What does it show us? Well, heart failure is a condition where the heart doesn't function well, and patients perceive it as increasing shortness of breath when they exert themselves, and sometimes even when they sleep. They also experience fatigue, swelling in the legs and abdomen, and find that they do not have the oomph to get their daily activities done. Heart failure affects about 750,000 Canadians, but it is often under-recognized and under-treated. Patients, particularly those in remote regions, in rural regions, may not have access to care. And even patients living in urban areas where they do have access to quaternary care centers that have expertise in treating heart failure may find that their symptoms are not recognized. Often, shortness of breath can occur due to a variety of reasons. They're not specific to heart failure. And so it's important that the condition is diagnosed appropriately and treated with this new array of medications that we know decrease the risk of hospitalization and death. But for them to work, they must be prescribed to patients. And so diagnosis access to care, and treatment are important tenets of heart failure, as is the prevention of heart failure, because heart failure is often due to treatable risk factors, such as heart attacks or heart cardiovascular disease, obesity, high blood pressure, conditions that are on the rise, but can be mitigated with medical therapy and lifestyle changes, such as better nutrition and exercise. So simple strategies to reduce the risk of heart failure, but also a recognition that we must diagnose it and treat it with the new array of medications that work as long as we prescribe it. So you mentioned 750,000 Canadians living with heart failure today, 100,000 people diagnosed uh, each year. What is the cost associated with those numbers, with those individuals? Well, heart failure is the most expensive condition to treat among older adults. It is the leading cause of hospitalization. It is a leading cause of death. And once patients are hospitalized, they are on a trajectory where they are at increased risk of decompensation requiring further hospitalization. So the cost is inordinate um, and the burden on patients as well as on the healthcare system is large. Dr. Harriet Van Spall is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Dr. Van Spall is an associate professor of medicine for McMaster University, scientist for Population Health Research Institute, and a Heart and Stroke Foundation of Canada spokesperson. We're talking about new data from the Heart and Stroke Foundation that reveals how Canada is failing people with heart failure. Some uh, statistics from your recent poll show that four in 10 Canadians don't understand what heart failure is. One in three don't know what heart that heart failure is on the rise. And two in three do not know there is no cure for heart failure. Is there some apathy or do Canadians just not want to think about what heart failure can do? 
I do not think that there is apathy. I think that the burden of heart failure is partly due to the nonspecific symptoms and also the fact that we assess heart function using imaging, which is really great at picking up one kind of heart failure, the kind that is associated with a decrease in the heart's pump function, but not another growing kind of heart failure in which the heart's pumping function is okay, it's normal, but the heart doesn't relax normally. And so it doesn't fill up with the same volume of blood. The walls are stiff. And so the pressure in the heart increases, causing a second kind of heart failure that we called heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And so part of the reason why heart failure is underrecognized is that we don't have the technologies that make it clearly apparent that patients have this condition. And the risk factors for this condition are sometimes those without symptoms. So patients do not perceive the benefit of treating those symptoms and the risk factors. So for example, obesity is a large cause of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. But for the most part, um, we do not intervene when patients are on the trajectory towards obesity or are obese. Hypertension, similarly, doesn't have any symptoms. High blood pressure, lots of people walk around with high blood pressure, but don't have any symptoms from it. So do not understand the importance of treating it. And high blood pressure is a big cause, not only of heart failure, but also of heart attacks and strokes. And all of these conditions, these downstream conditions associated with hypertension are highly symptomatic and burdensome because they cause not only death, but disability that people then have to live with. So recognize the, the risk factors for heart failure, treat the risk factors so that you can prevent heart failure because once heart failure is diagnosed, it's a chronic condition and it's not curable, but there's hope with better treatments. There's hope for patients to live symptom-free. There's hope for heart function to recover. And there's hope that the costs associated with heart failure, close to $3 billion a year, a large part of these costs are due to hospitalizations that can be prevented with these new line of agents. So lots of things to consider and lots of hope for us to stamp out this condition, to prevent it, and to mitigate its burden. We got some work to do. Dr. Van Spall, appreciate the time today. Happy heart health to you. Happy heart health to you, my friend, and thank you for having me. Let's all live a heart-healthy life. That is Dr. Harriet Van Spall from McMaster University, scientist for Population Health Research Institute and a Heart and Stroke Foundation of Canada spokesperson. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode, and make sure you rate and review.